What a week. The 88th legislative session has officially begun, and with it has come all sorts of drama related to increased office budgets and the rules that guide institutions like the Texas House of Representatives. The Comptroller also gave us an update this week about the fiscal state of Texas. We discuss it all on Episode 2 of Taxpayer Talks and even get a visit from a friend, Vance Ginn, a Ph.D. economist, to help us make sense of it all. Let's get into it. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and is made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Taxpayer Talks. This is Tim Harden, president of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility, here with Jeremy Kitchen, our executive director. It's been a wild week this week, Jeremy. What's What's been going on the last couple of days? Yeah, this week's been pretty interesting. Obviously, it is no secret that the... Uh, the 88th legislative session has officially begun, right? Lawmakers are back in town. And what is it when lawmakers are back in town? Your liberties are not safe, That's right. right? Hide your wallets, hide your kids, everything. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, you know, it's, it's been a busy week. Usually the first week is really busy. And so on Tuesday, they swore in, they took the speaker vote, which we're going to talk about uh, before that day before that, the comptroller is constitutionally bound to give a biennial revenue estimate. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit with uh, Mr. Van Skin. Uh, and of course we had the rules battle today. We're recording this Wednesday. So that's what we're going to kind of cover today. So let's start with um, the the swearing in and the speaker uh, vote. What kind of tell everybody kind of what happened on Tuesday? Yeah, so of course, you know, we're going to primarily be talking about the House of Representatives, but it's important to at least mention that, of course, the Senate starts at the same time. It's just less exciting. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, most of everything they do is kind of just, it's a, more of a formality. They've done most everything behind the scenes. So for, for those purposes, we'll be talking primarily about the House, but, you know, day one, right? They're, they're, they operate under kind of a temporary organizational sphere you have the secretary of state is who comes in right to to swear everyone in because they technically don't have a speaker of the house and then of course as soon as they were sworn in um, you know the first vote first record vote they take for the entire legislative session is on a speaker and you know there was a uh, uh, back in november you had an announcement by tfr taxpayer champion tony tinderholt right that he was going to challenge uh, the incumbent, Dade Phelan, uh, to the seat of a uh, House Speaker. Um, of course, there was no requirement that he follow through with that, but he, in fact, did. Um, and so, of course, what you had was the first uh, record vote. Um, you know, Tony, uh, Representative Tinderholt, brought it to the floor. And uh, um, I think, I, I forget what the final tally was. I think it was 145 lawmakers, uh, Republican and Democrat, voted in favor of the incumbent, Dade Phelan. And I believe it was only three, which included, of course, Representative Tinderholt himself, who voted for uh, for Tony Tinderholt. And so uh, now we're operating under a speaker. Uh, speaker Dade Phelan was, of course, successfully reelected. Um, and, you know, that'll be for the uh, the remainder of the session and interim um, of the 88th legislature. 
Yeah. So I think it's important to note, you know, we, we did a pretty long interview with representative Tenderholt not too long ago in the fall. Uh, and, and he kind of explained his motivations behind why he, he ran for speaker and he was leaning heavily as a Republican on the Republican party platform. And the fact that especially last session that are feeling, he felt as though the Republican priorities were not dealt with. Um, and he was uh, fearful that things like, uh, the priority of Democrat chairs, uh, chairing committees was not going to be dealt with this go round as well. So this was really the reasoning behind him running. Uh, and so he did, uh, he did lose pretty handily. So he had, like I said, three, I believe it was at chats line, Slayton and tender Holt who all cast votes for him. So, uh, that, that kind of brought us to the next showdown. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they swear in the speaker and they do a bunch of procedural stuff and then they decided to do rules the day after. And so they, they typically take up a housekeeping resolution and they take up the house rules. These are, uh, HR three, I believe was a housekeeping and HR four was the, uh, the house rules. And so they dealt with the housekeeping resolution first. And I would say the, the major thing, there's two major things that, that happened in the housekeeping resolution. One was they decided to uh, increase allocations to office budgets. And so uh, if y'all don't know how uh, the House and Senate both work, um, the Senate just kind of uh, passes in kind of a, a, an open thing. It's SB, uh, SR1, I think, was theirs. They increased their budgets as well, I think like 46%, which is actually really common in the Senate. The Senate actually uh, like... Every session usually bumps themselves up really nicely, uh, which we would argue is not a very good uh, steward of tax dollars. The Taos usually has a fight over because it's more public. And like you said, it's a little more exciting. And so the original resolution, they're, they're allocated, I believe last go run was 15,200 uh, 15, and something. And so the resolution read they were going to bump it up to 17 and then representative Metcalf came and, and offered an amendment and bumped it up to 1950, which uh, ultimately um, made it about a 26% increase. Uh, and they also slipped in some language that um, basically talked about using state dollars for political purposes. Um, and this was actually used and we'll get to this. This was used to uh, kind of prevent uh, the Democrat chair. Now, now there's also, there's probably some constitutional issues there, but this was kind of their, their way of codifying it uh, to make it easy to overrule any vote and to hide Republicans who didn't want to take a vote. But before we get there, uh, let's just kind of talk about um, office allocations and and we we are scoring this and we we were opposed to this. Uh, so let's talk quickly why we've historically opposed uh, office allocation increases in the, in the House. Yeah, I think it's important, right? So from the outset, you know, you and I are both former legislative staff, right? So we kind of, we know how this works as former chiefs of staff, right? Certainly we had our hands and kind of how the operating budgets on the house side, right? Uh, certainly work what you're allocated uh, monthly, which is what you alluded to earlier. And of course, it's also important to note, at least on the house side, not to get too in the weeds, right? But you, they do have a provision in the rules that says there is a cap, right? So what, what they essentially did was bust or uh, increase a cap, right? Uh, that uh, an individual, right staff member can make right in any any individual office okay um, now you are also allowed to have one staff person right bust that cap meaning make more than whatever that recommended cap is right obviously um, all the all the books have to you know line up at the end of the day they can't spend more than um, they're allocated but you know the biggest takeaway here right and of course you wrote about this and and the reason this organization's always kind of been opposed to it is look you know we are you're essentially growing government by increasing the salaries right of staff members bureaucrats right we're former bureaucrats but bureaucrats right in these offices 
at the expense of taxpayers, right? When the budget bill comes up, right, this cycle, which will likely be end of March, early April, right, there are provisions in there for how much the legislature itself gets appropriated. Now, what will be interesting to see is do they increase their own appropriations, right, uh, to suffice for these raises um, and what have you. So, you know, we'll we'll see when we get there. But, you know, as you wrote about in your article, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're giving raises. And, of course, they cite, right, the need for it because of inflation. Uh, but as you handily pointed out, right, they raised it beyond what the inflation rate is, right? So <laughs> you have these staffers who will – some myriad of staffers will be um, essentially profiting off of this. Um, you know, and they, they talk about it. Well, we need to keep quality staff and what have you. And look, that I, I will absolutely agree that there's definitely a struggle asking folks to live in the city of Austin, one of the highest right place. Uh, it costs a lot to live in this part of Texas. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, look, other states do this with less staff. Right. It's important to also talk about that. Um, and of course, we're not even mentioning the Senate, which has just egregiously cycle after cycle, right, um, um, appropriated more and more money here. There's a way to do this, certainly. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, taxpayers aren't able to vote themselves a race, right? That's that's where this really comes down to. Um, and so, as you said, we, we put a vote notice out on it. It's likely something we're going to score on our index this cycle. Yeah, I, you know, I think just to kind of say one more piece about that, uh, you know, when you and I took the job, you know, as, as fiscal conservatives, you know, us being both ideologues, right? Like I understood that when I'm stepping in to be a bureaucrat, essentially, right? I'm a, I'm a public servant. Uh, I left uh, a pretty lucrative construction company uh, that I have started to come do this, taking a, a pay cut. And I know you personally, you know, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, and I know that you had second jobs uh, when uh, to make ends meet. You have you have a family. I have a family. I had second jobs the entire time. And I chose to do that because uh, uh, at least we, we tried to honor, right, the 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 nature of the job itself, which is we are public servants and we are stewards of tax dollars, which means I did not go be a staffer in the legislative, the Texas legislature to be wealthy, right? So I knew it would not be a, a wonderfully uh, glorious salary. I would imagine teachers, uh, many government employees have the same mentality. I don't think most teachers come in saying, hey, I'm, I want to be a teacher because I want to make $120,000 a year. Uh, they understand that they're a public servant. They're using tax dollars. You know, could you argue for raises? Sure. Um, but it's, it's when you're when you're, you know, quote unquote, working on appropriations for 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 everything as as a staffer uh, in in a year in an economic downturn year when people are being crushed. It's just one. It's a bad look. Right. When you give yourselves we just vote and give your yourselves raises. Um, I, I would say that's kind of getting the cart ahead of the horse. There's a way in which you can increase office allocations and be responsible. But I think uh, you and I both know that's not typically how it's done. Uh, and, and they're very sloppy with how uh, we spread money around. And so for that reason, and just the, the concept of the nature of the job itself being a public servant, um, it's just a bad year. To, and it's bad optics, right? To to give yourself a twenty six percent raise, and, and and we say raise not because the 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 money goes directly towards raises, but the reality is it it's an office budget. But I would say, what would you say, eighty or ninety percent of that goes to salaries, right? And so really, yes. what we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about office allocations, yeah, sure, you know, you buy some supplies with it, you do a couple a couple other things with it, but for the most part the vast majority of it, we're talking salaries here. And so if we're talking 
an increase in allocation, we're talking increase in salaries to bureaucrats or to uh, legislative staffers. And so, um, so I, I think it, it's worthwhile to mention, right? Because this is constant confusion. You always see is we are not talking about lawmaker correct. salaries, right? And stipends. This is strictly staff or people that work for lawmakers, right? So lawmakers, they have a constitutionally set uh, uh, a limit as to what they get paid. It's a separate pool of money, right? Separate budget, operating budget, all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, and it's also you know good to announce that they don't make anything, dude. I want I I don't know if they bumped it since then, but it was like seventy five hundred a year or something like that. I think it was like so, six hundred dollars a month. I think so, whatever yeah. that equals out, yeah, per year. And yeah. so we will, hey, and we like that, and 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 that is part of that servant mentality. And you don't hear any lawmakers really complaining about their salary. They understand that this is pretty much a volunteer thing. You're making six hundred bucks a month, uh, and they get per diem, you know, but they're not really making profit off of that. So, um, so ultimately, you know, we had well, we had two people, I think, vote against the housekeeping resolution. I think it was Tinderholt and Slayton who voted against that. So that passed overwhelmingly and they moved on to the House rules. So you want to kind of break down kind of the intro to the House rules and how that went down? Yeah, there's a lot here, right? So, you know, the, I believe the rules um, resolution was authored by Representative Todd Hunter, who has kind of authored this sort of thing previously. Um, you know, uh, for those that have maybe tuned into previous legislative cycles, what normally happens, right, is uh, a few months before the legislative session, uh, you'll have the House Administration Committee normally kind of hosted this kind of informal hearing where they invite their colleagues, right, lawmakers to come in and uh, offer proposals for the committee to hear. Normally what happens, there's no requirement, by the way, that lawmakers do that, right, at least officially. But normally what happens is that committee kind of puts together a package, right, uh, of what they think maybe if there are going to be changes, what that rules resolution change kind of summary would be, right, which is what you saw in House Resolution 4 today, um, the, the rules package. Um, inevitably, right, this comes with there's going to be still there's still going to be attempts by lawmakers to try to amend those rules, uh, right, to benefit maybe one party over another or benefit one kind of ph philosophical, you know, bent over another and what have you. But uh, I mean, we saw a lot of the same amendments we've seen previously. So I say I say all that because the big right thing that most people at least listening to this or maybe interested in, um, certainly people that are, are tuned to Twitter, right, and kind of the, the state media uh, sphere is that everyone knew there was going to be at least one, a few, right, uh, proposed amendments that dealt specifically with preventing the minority party, which is in, right now currently the Democrat party, right, the minority party from chairing um, house committees um, and so kind of wherever you are on that philosophical bent right republicans control the state legislature they control the house they've done so for what uh, two decades um, and so you've got kind of the the activist uh, wing of the republican party um, we heard a lot about this when we were of course at their their state convention this year that are they're angry right they're upset that in a majority uh, republican majority controlled legislature that the minority party controls uh, some committees. And as a result, I think it's almost like one third of the committees, right? 13 committees, if I remember right, last cycle. And as a result of that, um, some of their legislative priorities in the past have died, right? Uh, that's kind of where they pinned the blame. So I say all that because 
There was an effort. You had the Republican Party of Texas make it one of their eight legislative priorities this cycle to what they called ban Democrat chairs. You had a bunch of activists that were set to come down, right, travel down to uh, to the to the Capitol. I believe they originally planned for Thursday, but you still had a good amount if you watched the gallery today uh, that were sitting in there, certainly visiting lawmakers' offices, right, to try to influence their Republican lawmakers uh, to vote in favor of any of these amendments uh, that came up. And there were two or three of them that dealt with this. Um, But I think in summary for that specific thing, all of those efforts were defeated. And wouldn't you know it, there were no record votes on it, right? Because uh, they had points of order uh, ready to go. Um, So I I know I've been long-winded on that, but I think it's important to understand kind of the order of events, right? I think unbeknownst maybe to activists, certainly, right, that weren't following along and unbeknownst to maybe some lawmakers, right? Uh, There was a provision in the House Resolution 3 that you alluded to earlier, the housekeeping resolution um, that that was successfully adopted, obviously, um, that dealt specifically with making sure that uh, uh, office members, office budgets and resources, right, all their materials and everything that they get were not being used for, quote, political purposes. It was pretty, I'm not going to say specific, it was pretty broad. Uh, you know, I think to our credit, we pointed that out on Twitter. That was like, oh, this is an interesting addition. Uh, but, you know, in the citation for the points of order that they brought against the banned Democrat chairs amendments, I think that were all offered by Representative Brian Slayton, if I remember right, um, uh, to what they brought against it, the points of order that they brought, which were sustained, right? So the, those efforts were killed. Um, they cited the passage of the resolution before, you know, just an hour before, and I believe some attorney general opinions uh, to kind of come up this weird reasoning as to why, because it's now a political reason, they wouldn't be able to uh, to ultimately do this. And so uh, the efforts, at least currently, to, you know, to ban Democrat chairs were, were defeated. Mr. Speaker, members, I think you'll recognize this amendment. I filed the same amendment last session. I'm proud to be up here offering it again. This amendment will require the speaker to appoint committee chairs from the majority party. This amendment fulfills one of the legislative priorities of the Republican Party of Texas, will honor the will of the people of Texas by ensuring that they actually receive the leadership that they vote for on election day. Mr. Guerin, for a purpose. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry, please. Please state your inquiry. Mr. Speaker, did the House just adopt a housekeeping resolution for this session? That is correct, sir. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. Is that housekeeping resolution now in effect? It is now in effect, yes, sir. Mr. Speaker, I'd like to call a point of order against further consideration of this amendment. Please bring your report of order down front. Representative Guerin raises a point of order against further consideration of the Slayton Amendment on the grounds that the amendment seeks to authorize actions prohibited by the housekeeping resolution. The subject of the amendment, as stated by the author in his layout, is to prohibit the speaker from appointing certain members as certain chairs, specifically those members who are elected as nominees of an identified political party. The author additionally stated that the purpose of the amendment was to implement the directive of a political party's state executive committee. The housekeeping resolution adopted by the House earlier today codified the constitutional rule that House resources may only be used for public purposes and may not be used for political purposes. Attorney General, attorneys, attorneys General John Cornyn and Greg Abbott have both held that political parties are not public entities, but are political instrument, instrumentalities. Is that even a word? Sorry. 
The amendment would require a speaker to use public resources, including staff time and government facilities, on behalf of one political instrumentality. This obviously would require the speaker to violate the housekeeping resolution. Once adopted, a House resolution is not subject to collateral attack. The Slayton Amendment effectively seeks to amend the previously adopted housekeeping resolution, which is not permitted under House precedent. It may only be offered by way of direct amendment to that measure. Accordingly, the point of order is well taken and sustained. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Schaefer, what purpose? Parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. Are the House Republican Caucus and the House Democrat Caucus contemplated anywhere in our House rules or the housekeeping resolutions? That is not a proper parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. Does the Republican Caucus and the Democrat Caucus have office space in the Capitol that uses state electricity? That is not a proper parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Speaker, parliamentary inquiry. Please state your inquiry. Is the House Republican Caucus a political instrumentality? That is not a proper parliamentary inquiry. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I think we saw it was like the Republican Party of Texas is having a press conference with some members here either tomorrow or, or, or the next day uh, to try to address this because it's one of their eight priorities. Uh, but as of right now, there's, uh, there's, it looks like we're going to go another session where that, that precedent, the recent precedent like that um, is going to continue. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's telling, you know, what they did in the housekeeping specifically it was representative Charlie Guerin who came up and called the point of order on Slayton. And before he called, who, the who's a order, Republican, we should, who's know. a Republican out of the fourth yeah. area. And, you know, he came up and before he called the point of order, he said, is the housekeeping resolution currently enacted, basically, or something along those lines, right? And so he was making sure and kind of saying, basically, you know, showing the hand and saying, hey, we just passed this thing to block you, essentially. Now, uh, I think it's telling because, you know, whether or not the the point of order would have been sustained without that provision, maybe they they probably would have leaned on the AG rulings and some other stuff. I'm sure I'm sure they would have, right? But what it tells us is they purposely put that in the housekeeping resolution and who's they speaker Phelan and his team who, who is driving the, the train on, you know, when they do the rules and everything else, they purposely put that provision in there knowing that they were going to use that in order to call point of orders on any of these amendments, which they knew were coming from Slayton and, and probably a few others who were talking. It about should it. be noted too. I don't want to interrupt you, but you look like to my recollection, no lawmaker, at least publicly, right, from the back mic asked questions about that language being um, inserted in there, which I find interesting, too. So, you know, I, I don't want to uh, ascribe any nefarious like action there. Like maybe they just didn't know. Right. Um, I don't know if the, if the goose was cooked already, if the theater was set or what have you. But maybe. I don't believe anyone asked questions about that. No, no, they didn't. Uh, they just kind of, you know, got in line and voted for it. And uh, I, I would assume, you know, if there was nefarious purposes there, that uh, that's exactly what they were hoping on. Uh, but I, at least in my opinion, think that uh, it was pretty obvious uh, that they were prepared for these amendments. Uh, most of the amendments were, were not even allowed to be laid out 
they they interrupted them. Uh, most of these were Charlie Guerin, uh, and there's I think Moody did one, and there's a few other ones who uh, who there's a bunch of various movements, not just the Democrat chairs, but the one on Marxism and I think gender ideology and stuff. But it, it was very clear that they already knew these were coming. They already knew they were going to call point of orders, and and this whole thing was kind of uh, a show. Right. And so um, that that it's it's significant. And I think we should at least point that out, that uh, the fact that Garen asked if the housekeeping resolution was enacted before he called the point of order shows that the purpose of that provision was at least in part to deal and to and to protect the Republicans from taking a vote on the minority chair issue. And so, um, you know, that's, that's my opinion. It's looks, that looks like the way it, it, it worked out, but uh, since no one asked questions, we, we will not know, right? Nobody, nobody. And we, and we also won't know which is likely purposeful, right? Is like, there was no record vote taken on any of those that we were talking about because they had successfully sustained points of orders on them. Um, Obviously you talked about a few of the other amendments, but there were some, like, I think for our purposes, good accountability and transparency proposals uh, that were put forth. Some did get votes, um, which, you know, we, we talked about at least on Twitter for those that don't follow us there. Uh, But, you know, there it's kind of stuff that we've seen previously, right? I think you had representative Tenderholt bring some pretty decent um, accountability, transparency ones dealing with, you know, getting rid of the practice of tagging and, and the calendars committee processes, right. Or uh, making sure that bills that maybe were heard, but never got a vote in committee, that there's a timeline in which they have to get a vote. So we can at least see who in committee didn't want it, right. Didn't want it to pass. Uh, things like that, things where that lawmakers currently use the process to hide behind. Um, I think uh, you had some good good faith efforts by people like Representative Tinderholt uh, to try to bring those actions to light. Those were defeated, uh, sadly, um, as well. And you had one that my personal pet favorite, uh, which is I think a lot of transparency needs to go into the video and archival process for for videos. You had one uh, by I believe it was Slayton that offered it. Uh, that required that if I'm viewing a video broadcast, as I imagine many of our watchers might be if they're tuning into the legislature, you have no idea who's talking. There's no like, you know, little lower thirds that comes up and says the name. And so all he simply wanted to do was require that a banner show up, right, uh, to say who is this rep that's talking and uh, lawmakers resoundingly. I believe that was actually subject to a, a point of order that was successful, right? And they like kind of wiggled their way um, out of that, which just kind of shows you just how like they love to operate in the shadows. And I think that's really unfortunate for for Texas taxpayers. Yeah, I, I think the only thing we haven't spoken about is the First Amendment that was brought is brought by Hunter, I believe, which was uh, an amendment. Uh, he basically was trying to create a process in which, you know, long story short, you know, the Democrats took off and broke quorum. And so they wanted a, a process in which uh, they could enact um you know, a punishment essentially, uh, if, if you decide to break quorum. So a, a process in the house by which, uh, they could ultimately expel them if they wanted to, although it was very hazy and he was very hazy in all his answers on how it would work. I think, you know, his general opinion was we want the house to make the decision at the time. Uh, and so, you know, Democrats were up there kind of, uh, fighting against that as, as, uh, as you would expect them to do. And, uh, it was a, basically a, a close to a party line vote, I believe. Um, and so it I think there were three Democrats that voted for it, if I remember. Yeah. 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 And so that was kind of their effort 
uh, if the Democrats decide to break quorum, uh, we will see how effective that rule is. I think that was something that uh, was asked for really in the in in the uh, special sessions last go round, but they decided to deal with it in the rules. And so uh, probably is a, a a good amendment, but we will see if they break quorum, if it's effective uh, at actually bringing them back uh, to make them work or not. Uh, that I, The thing that, I think that's worthwhile to note here too, right, mm-hmm. is like, and you saw the exchange. I won't talk too much about that, but, you know, the new Democrat caucus chairman is state representative Trey Martinez Fisher, right? Democrat, I believe from the San Antonio area, who in the past has been a pretty like decent rules kind of connoisseur, right? Um, if you will. And it was an interesting back and forth as the new Democrat caucus chair. He didn't, he had an interview, I think a week or two ago where he based, he was basically asked, would y'all break quorum again? And he of course did not say no, right? Like, why would you, why would you uh, get rid of, you know, they didn't, none of them got punished for it last time. So why would you get rid of your, probably your, your ace of spades, right? Or, or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I thought that was interesting because he had an exchange with Hunter today trying to kind of establish some, uh, so, some dialogue, if you will, for any inevitable legal fight that might come right as a result, if this was ever used and that sort of stuff. So um, the biggest takeaway for me on this, by the way, is I think some of that stuff, I think I read later on Twitter after this exchange, that some of the stuff that Representative Cody Vasut was fighting for, he was kind of the guy last year in the special sessions trying to get some of these kind of things added in because everyone was under the impression that they didn't have enough right to actually go after these lawmakers. I believe he successfully got a lot of those in with this amendment with representative Hunter. So. Yeah. So we will, we will see uh, the rules have been passed. The house King resolution is passed. We are, we are really ready to do business in the house and in the Senate. Um, but for now, let's, let's backtrack a couple of days uh, to Monday uh, and the comptroller uh, releases BRE and we have uh, a conversation we have with Mr. Vance again. So let's, let's go to that real quick. Hey Vance, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well, Tim. How are you? Good, good to see you. Uh, of course, we wanted to talk about uh, the controller and his release of the biennial revenue estimate. So I want to kind of hand it over to you and to kind of explain to our viewers, you know, what the BRE is uh, and and what we found out on Monday. Well, Tim, you know, there's a lot of details that we can go into, but a top line kind of numbers and, and sense of what we have here is the BRE is the biennial revenue estimate, which is where the comptroller comes out the day before session starts. Everybody's ready for it. And he tells the legislature, this is how much revenue that you're going to have available to appropriate during the legislative session. We've, we've got a balanced budget amendment, right? So we're fortunate of, to be one of those states. Um, almost every state has one, not at the federal level, of course. They run up massive deficits, but each state has these balanced budget amendments. And it means that you've got to only spend a certain amount of money. And that is what was released um, on Monday, January 9th by the comptroller. So he's given the amount out there of about 180 $88 billion for 24, 25. Um, and so it's a massive amount of money. It's a huge increase from the previous BRE, uh, nearly 30% increase. And so they've got a ton of money to spend or provide tax relief, you know? I think, I think it's important. You know, I get this question. I Speaking last night, I got this question, right? It's like, where does that money come from, right? Like mm. we know, we've talked about it several times, the state doesn't levy the property tax. So where do they get that revenue? 
The vast majority of the revenue comes from sales taxes. Um, you're talking about over 50%, nearly 60% of the general revenue comes from sales taxes. Um, but it also comes from the franchise tax, which is a, a tax on having a franchise or a business in Texas. Um, it comes from a number of other sources that will be well, that will go to general revenue overall that's not dedicated to, let's say, the state highway fund or other areas. Um, that is really a general revenue fund that we're talking about now. Um, and, you know, one thing I should mention here kind of up front, too, is that he said for the 2022-23 biennium budget period that we're in now, um, there looks to be a $32.7 billion surplus, just a massive increase, which is about $5 billion more than what he said just in July of 2022, just a few months ago. Um, and so that's how fast the economy has been growing. And, you know, as, as an economist, right, I like to look at these numbers and see what's happening. We've got an unemployment rate of 4% in Texas. Um, we've, we've had personal income growth of 8.2% growth in the third quarter of 2022. So a lot of things in the economy have been looking pretty good. Even though across the nation, things have looked a little dire, I think we're more of in a national recession, but Texas has been able to withstand that. And these numbers from the comptroller have indicated that as well. Um, he also noted that, look, in 2023, we're going to have a slowdown, if not a recession in Texas. I think while we can withstand some of the nonsense out of D.C., <laughs> um, we can, we're not immune to that nonsense, right, between the Federal Reserve's actions and Congress's overspending. Um, and so some of that is going to come home to roost here in Texas as well with fewer jobs, right, and people being laid off and things of that nature. And so he has brought down that growth rate in 2023 and then come back to an increase in, in 2024. So something for us to consider. But even with that, guys, we've still got a, a nearly 30% increase. So it's a massive amount of revenue coming in and so you you know we're you're probably familiar with tfr's uh, position on the surplus uh, it's very familiar uh with you know what you dealt with while you were at tppf uh using surplus dollars to buy down mno compression and so you know at the time when we first started talking about that at the end of last session i think the the surplus was around 8 billion then it grew to 15 then it grew to 27 and now we're at what 30 almost 33 billion dollars yes. and so our position is that 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 surplus is taxpayers money it was over collected by the government and so the best thing that we can do is give as much of that as possible back to taxpayers and we would elect to do that in the form of mno compression there's been concerns uh from the lieutenant governor he's he's mentioned things like uh, a spending cap having to break the spending cap and there's concerns uh abbott has said you know hey we're going to do the biggest um you know biggest property tax cut in history but the, the question remains like how much are we even able to spend out of that? So I just want to get your thoughts on, uh, you know, realistically, what is the most amount we could actually take from this to apply uh, to property tax relief and help Texans out? Yeah, yeah, Tim, I mean, these are key points to be thinking about right now for families at home. Look, I consider us to have an affordability crisis right now across even Texas is having an affordability crisis with home prices and values going through the roof. Um, interest rates going through the roof, inflation, eggs. <laughs> One thing after another is hitting our pocketbooks day, day, day in and day out. And this is an opportunity for Texas legislature to say, you know what? We're going to help out Texas families. And they've already been overpaying 
That's really what's happening here, right? This is all our money. Taxation is theft at the end of the day, okay? <laughs> so it's all of our money to pay for some limited government services that are being provided. Um, and I think we could all agree that the government's too big now. We're spending too much, okay? But let's give that money back to the form of property tax, like you said, rate compression, which is really just means that you're lowering the rates for school district maintenance and operations property taxes. So that's the portion of the independent school district property taxes that's paying for teacher salaries, for operations of the schools, things of that na nature. That's not including the debt, right? Like construction of new stadiums and uh, new buildings and things of that nature. This is really the day-to-day -day operations of schools. Um, and, and that portion is nearly half the property taxes that are collected across the state. And for many people, it could be even more than your than half of your property tax bill. And and like you said, you know, Tim, I think, um, but whether it be TFR or TVPF or others have said, you know what, let's find a way to eliminate, eliminate, get rid of it, right? This portion of the property tax um, is a good start for hopefully one day eliminating it all. But, but a way to do that is to use this surplus um, of general revenue related funds to buy down compress, reduce that rate over time. And I think there's a good opportunity to do so right now. Not only is there the $32.7 billion of surplus for 22-23, the current budget period, but if you look at the, the future, the $188 billion of general revenue, if you had something like a no growth budget or something along those lines, or just a limiting to some extent, you're going to have even larger surplus going into the next biennium that could provide an even larger down payment to eliminating this this big portion of the property tax as soon as possible and and that would really provide um relief for taxpayers from this affordability crisis that's going on. And, you know, the state legislature likes to point the, their fingers at the locals. The locals like to point their fingers at, at the state. And ultimately, I hope what they start pointing at is saying taxpayers, point to taxpayers, you're getting the relief. None of this. Stop this nonsense. Let's get back to the relief that's needed. And we have an ample what people are saying historic opportunity right now. And if it goes over the spending limit, because this current spending limit uh, includes property tax relief. Right. If you're using funding for that, um, I, I say that that's a conservative approach It's not growing to grow government. And so you should bust the spending limit. You need a simple majority vote to do so. The Republicans can do that. And there could be a massive property tax relief that's being provided. And, you know, the, the, the governor has said 50 percent. So let's say it's 50 percent. That's that, that's about 16, 17 billion dollars right there. Um, the largest property tax amount that was put towards or the relief, the general revenue that's put towards property tax relief was back in 07, 08. Um, and that was about 14 billion. If you adjust that for inflation, you're talking about closer to 20 billion dollars. So this for this to be the historic, right, a record breaking property tax relief, we need something around 20 billion dollars. So we need to at least hit 16, but keep adding more into it to really provide the property tax that I think not only to make it historic, but what taxpayers really need across the great state of Texas. You, you've mentioned a lot there, Vance. I appreciate it. The, certainly, I think, you know, what we're not talking about, right, to be clear is, you know, we don't want to give the impression that something like this, what we're talking about or describing to here, happens overnight, right? Mm. Obviously, this takes time. There's varying, right, uh, you know, ideas about how long of a time that takes, depending on what spending and revenue, right, all that stuff looks like. The one thing we haven't mentioned 
of course, right, is the rainy day fund, ah. right? Uh, and, and I'll let you kind of talk through the comptroller's thoughts on that. But I, I bring that up because some of the pushback we get, not necessarily generally from even the public, some lawmakers is, well, what happens if there's an economic downturn, right? So uh, may, maybe give your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, you know, Jeremy, I think that's a good point. And I hear that at the Capitol all the time um, from conservative members and moderates and, and others is how do we maintain that compression? So let's say we do come in and, you know, let's say they cut it in half. Just to throw that out there for right now. They, they cut these property taxes in half and the rate goes down substantially by, by half. Um, how do we maintain that in the next period? And what happens if there was a recession? Well, if you look back at general revenue related funds that are coming in and being collected over the last 20 years, there have really been um, only two periods where there were back to back years of declines in general revenue funds. And that was during the 0203 recession in Texas um, and then the 0809 the Great Recession. Right. So two severe recessions that we had. Um, but then it popped right back up. And even during that time, it wasn't a huge decline in the amount of general revenue. And so even let's say we go down some in the economy, general revenue doesn't flow in fast. In fact, it goes down some. Well, that's where, to your point, you can look at the rainy day fund. The comptroller said that the end of the current biennium in 2023, we would have a $13.7 billion amount in the rainy day fund. $13.7 billion, all right? So that's a massive amount to help to cover any sort of shortfalls we have. Oh, by the way, but it gets it gets better. Um, by the end of the 25 fiscal year, so the next biennium, we're talking closer to $27 billion that's going to be in the rainy day fund. And it even goes above the cap. There's a constitutional cap on the rainy day fund of 10% of certain dedicated general, uh, certain, um, certain general revenue, right? And so if it goes above that 10% of certain general revenue, then it goes back into the state treasury and could be used for spending and other purposes. I would hope that it would be used for more property tax relief. Um, but regardless, we would have, you know, 20 plus billion dollars sitting on the sidelines to help to cover any sort of um, reduction in, in revenue. And, and that's really what it was created to do was the rainy day fund was to cover unforeseen revenue shortfall. And, and overall, you know, by the way, they should also restrain spending. <laughs> this is always a spending problem, not a revenue problem. So keep restraining spending. And then if they needed more money, there's also the um, school districts have excess reserve funds sitting on the sidelines of about $20 billion, $20 billion that some of that's used for cash flow for day-to-day -day operations, but not all of that. Maybe they have an additional six, seven, eight billion dollars that they could also put into that if we see that the revenue falls. Why are they sitting on that money in the first place? Right. And so I think that this is overblown that the recession or a recession is going to contribute to us not being able to maintain this. I think it's really a factor that they want to spend too much money instead. So on, on the thought of recession and cutting spending, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the concept of no growth budget, which, which is in our pro Texas prosperity plan. Um, and so I want to talk to you about the, the advantages of that, even even if, you know, you were not able to, you know, pass a no growth budget. But even if we if we move the ball and limit it to like two or three uh, percent, uh, instead of what we have right now, which was the spending cap, which is population plus inflation. Of course, inflation is at historic levels. So I think it was what, 12.3 percent was the cap, the constitutional cap this go around. So what is the advantage of moving to a more conservative metric like either a no growth budget or a very, very small amount like a two percent or three percent growth? What would that mean for tax? taxpayers? And is that a feasible thing to do uh, in, in Texas state government? 
Initial answer is yes. It is definitely feasible to do, given the size of the budget that we have today. Um, you, could, you could go in and find a lot of savings already. And, and so we're not even saying and the no growth budget, right, just means that you need to find some efficiencies with what you were spending before. And oftentimes there's a lot of one-time expenditures that will be um, you know, appropriated each session that those are going to fall off anyway. And so that leaves you additional room to fund some growth if you, if you need to in certain areas. So, so even as us being, you know, good fiscal hawks, which I think that we are right. Um, that, that this considers uh, growth in certain areas as those one-time expenditures fall away. Um, and I think, you know, we would make the case that look, the budget's already too big. <laughs> we need to cut it even more, but that's trying to be re realistic given the situation that we're in. So a two or 3% growth budget, um, I think is even more realistic and, 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 and more uh, uh, allowing for there to be some reasonable growth in certain areas. Um, now, whether or not they should, that's a different question. But the the more that you allow for growth, I think this is the big point, Tim, the more that you allow for growth in the in the spending part of it, the less we're going to have available for property tax relief. So a no growth budget, you're going to have a you're going to have a lot more than you would uh, for property tax relief of additional revenue, right? That excess, that surplus, than you would if you had a two or three percent growth uh, increase, um, or even if you had the historical rate of population inflation of six percent um, of something along those lines. You know that's going to leave you less available each period to be able to buy down that or compress that school district MO property tax rate. Um, and so some of the initial calculations that I'm looking at right now. Um, whether you looked at the 2% or 3% or even the 6% growth rate of, of, of spending, um, you know, that kind of pushes you further and further out for the elimination. Jeremy mentioned earlier, that this won't happen overnight and it won't happen overnight. Um, but, but what you could do is put a significant amount towards the down payment this time, given this historic amount that's out there to buy down the school of property tax and then keep doing that, whether it be 50% or 90%, there's some good bills out there that have shown 90% or limiting revenue of general revenue to 104%. So you only allow for 4% growth in, in spending and allow for the rest of it to be used, uh, or the vast majority of the rest of it to be used for, for buying down. You know, These are the types of things that we need to be looking at to quickly eliminate the school district given no property tax, given the affordability crisis, given even a recession. You know, if we're going to have a deeper recession, where do you want that money? You want that in the, the you know what you want that money in the private sector. That's where productivity happens. That's where new job creation happens. And so that's what we really need to see here in Texas. That's a great point. I, what I do hear you saying out of all of this, right? And you alluded to, um, like I think Tim and I have mentioned it before, maybe on last week's episode or before, is like if there's ever a reason to bust the spending cap, Aye. I don't think you'll find a conservative, maybe a taxpayer in Texas that wouldn't support their lawmaker to bust the cap for this purpose, right? To literally provide them property tax relief that they can feel, right? That would yeah. be worthwhile to them. Um, I guess, and, and Jeremy, that's probably, and, that, and Jeremy, that's probably shocking to some people who are going to watch this. Given the three of us uh, that are talking about this right now, is we're saying to bust the spending limit because I've talked to some folks and they're like, "Well, isn't that going to set a bad precedent?" And, and I'm like, "If this sets a bad precedent for providing tax relief, then count me in." Because I want that continued to happen over time. The, the spending limit is important because you don't want to grow government. The ultimate burden of government is how much it spends, not how much it taxes, right? Taxes are just a symptom of that disease of spending. And so if we are just basically providing funding to, to buy down those that, that school and no property taxes, that, that's not growing government in the process.
So, you know, we haven't, one of the things we haven't talked about yet, and but we're talking about property taxes. You can't talk about property taxes without also talking about school finance. But, but even then, we're not even talking about a problem that certainly needs to be addressed and that's spending at the local level as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on both of those things? I think that's right. I mean, the, the, the Texas legislature, and this is one reason why I think we focus so much on the ISD M&O property taxes, because they're essentially run by the state. The, the state legislature determines the school finance formulas that are going to determine how much money is going out to these schools based on um, uh, an allocated amount, weighted average daily attendance uh, amount for each student, which currently is like around $14,000 per student. And so if you think about it, that fills the bucket up the 14000 Part of it's going to be filled by property taxes, and then the state funds in the rest. But it's all determined at the end of the day, that bucket by the Texas legislature. And, and so this is already a state determined taxing situation or spending situation, I should say. Um, the, the local property tax is local in name only. Right. And, and so it's like, look, let's just give it all, all to the state and, and allow, allow them to spend the money um, that way. And, and ultimately, I think I hope for, you know, school choice, education, savings accounts, something along those lines for those dollars. Um, but but you also have a situation where other localities, cities, counties, special purpose districts um, and even schools for their INS, the debt portion, are running up uh, massive increases right now in the amount of property tax hikes that they're putting in place because they want to spend more. And, you know, we were looking at some of the numbers here recently, just from 21 to 22, the school M&O property taxes are up about 13.1%. Um, uh, overall, school district property taxes are up 13.7%. And some say, well, man, I thought we just put past House Bill 3 back in 2019 of a 2.5% limitation. But remember, that, li that limitation of uh, the trigger of, tw of, of uh, 2019 of 2.5%, that was only for existing property. That was not new property. And we've been gangbusters new property all across this great state. And so I think we need to move to a spending limit at the local level as well. Um, just like we have at the state, if it's population inflation, I mean, I think we would love for it to be even less than that. Maybe it's a no growth budgets at the, at the local level as well. But we need spending limits at the local level that covers all revenue, sales tax revenue, property tax, whether it's existing or new property, um, fines and fees. The spending limit should cap all of it. And the state can't just um, keep them from growing at all because that would go up against the Constitution. But the way out of that is to allow for that trigger, Senate Bill 2, for example, to have that vote. If they want to go above the no new revenue rate or whatever rate, whatever rate you want in place, they would go out to the voters and ask them kind of for permission uh, at the ballot for whether or not they can increase their taxes at all. And that would give them a way out. So long story short. We need spending limits that restrain spending, not only at the state level, that are as strict as possible, but also at the local level. And, man, we would be a dynamic economy with robust jobs. More businesses want to move here. We don't need some ridiculous Chapter 313s and Chapter 11s and everything else they want to you know, incentivize businesses to be here. The best incentive is to restrain spending and provide lower taxes for everyone. Amen. Man, couldn't couldn't have said it better myself, Vance. So, you know, focusing on on the local level, you mentioned the no new revenue rate, and and Jeremy and I, and even you've been in some of the conversations about you know what 
what if we even if we like let's say we did a no growth budget or let's say we didn't do a no growth budget and we started spending uh the surplus and put ourselves on a path towards elimination one of the problems that could happen if we don't restrain local spending and reform really the the property tax process could be that there's a lot of little loopholes that could prolong the process maybe even indefinitely depending on what happens and so you know spending caps are a good idea we've spoken about um, things like moving the no new revenue rate down to the, excuse me, moving the voter approval rate down to the no new revenue rate. Right now, they're kind of a separate voter approval is that that limit. And then no new revenue would be a net neutral levy, uh, what that rate would actually be. And so by moving the voter approval rate down to the no new revenue rate, it would essentially be no growth or it would trigger an election uh, if they wanted to raise uh, the rate that would they would increase the total tax levy more than neutral, right? Um, so the I guess the other question is, you know, we have some reforms like that we've talked about. What are some other reforms on the local level, whether it be appraisal reform, uh, that could help speed up the process of compressing MNO down to zero, or, or maybe some some obstacles that could stand in the way if we don't deal with them as a legislator on the on the local level? Yeah, no, those are good points, Tim. Um I like the idea of moving that rollback rate, the voter approval rate, uh, 3.5% for cities, county, and special purpose districts, or some special purpose districts. There's a lot of carve-outs, too, of those, right? <laughs> um, and remember, they carved out all new property as well. I would like to see that include all property um, in all the jurisdictions down to the no new revenue rate. And for schools, the same thing. Instead of the 2.5% for existing property, it should include all property and it should go down to 0% as well. So if schools want to raise their property taxes or cities, county, special purpose districts, they would all have to go to the voter to get approval. Um, you know, and there's this discussion about local control, right? And these local voter or the, the, the local politicians who are put in place, um, they're elected they're supposed to be representing us. And the problem is, though, is that they're not representing us and preserving our liberty, which is the key role for government, right? And if the state has a, a spending limit, why shouldn't local spend, local governments have spending limit? Um, and, and if they're not going to follow through, they need to go back to the, the voters and say, you know, basically, can we raise your taxes? Why is it that they can raise your taxes without having any approval at all? Why don't they just lower them every time? These are key questions that I think we think about and voters are thinking about, but these politicians are not. They have different um, in economics. We talk about public choice economics where they had different incentives. You know, we think about it from a marginal cost, marginal be uh, benefit sort of analysis. They don't because their marginal changes are different because also what do they got to do? They got to win votes to get elected. They got to appeal to interest groups and everything else that puts the, the voters too often on the back burner. And, and that can't be the case. The, the, the taxpayer has to be first. And when we can get to that situation, whether it's be taking that rollback rate, that voter approval rate down to the no new revenue rate, or whether that be a spending limit. And oh, by the way, if we can put these local spending limits in place, what about this, guys? If, if they have a surplus, which they will, OK, the, their own surplus would go to buy down their own property taxes. So you could have a situation where the state is buying down the school M&O property tax, right? The largest portion, buying that down to zero over time. And then all these other local governments are buying down their own property taxes. And that would be a way for us to eliminate property taxes across the entire state. 
which which I would love to see. I just think we'd be an economic powerhouse. No other state has that. We don't have an income tax. We have no per property tax. Like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that sounds that sounds amazing. Everybody would want to come to Texas. Uh, we have some other uh, <laughs> constraints that we need to think about. But, but, but that is the sort of situation we need to be in so that government spending is the problem. Let's limit that and then think about how to lower taxes until we can get um, them as low as possible, if not eliminated over time. Here we are on Wednesday, day two of the 88th legislative session, right? Uh, 138 days left. The reality is, is significantly less than that, right? They won't be able to really consider bills until uh, after March 10th. But it's concerning, and we've written about this previously. I wanted to get your thoughts, right? It seems like you've got kind of the big three on similar but different pages when it comes to property taxes, right? You've got, uh, of course, the governor we alluded to earlier, right, at the gubernatorial debate at the end of September, uh, where he talked about, I want to eliminate the school portion of the property tax, right? I want to provide the largest property tax uh, cut in history. He said that before then and then reiterated it there at the debate. Uh, we talked about that earlier. You've got the lieutenant governor who kind of in interviews goes out of his way to say he's on the same page as the governor, but then talks about stuff that's completely different than that, uh, which is, you know, he seems primarily focused on increasing the homestead exemption, which, of course, the legislature's done a few times before, right? And then you've got, we, we really got our kind of first insight into House Speaker Dade Phelan's priority on this uh, this week, right, um, in, his, in his speech after winning re-election, uh, where he seemed, even though he kind of alluded to providing property tax relief, he only focused on appraisal reform. Um, I, I'm not someone to say that shouldn't be done, but it seems like maybe they're on slightly different pages. And of course, we're in early session, but what are your thoughts? Where do you think, if you had to prognosticate, where do you think the legislature potentially ends up here uh, as we get towards the end of the session in May? Yeah, it, it's been interesting to, to see the dynamics that are going on. Um, you know, historically, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has been more of the conservative bulwark here where we can rely on him to come out and come up with some good conservative policies of the big, bold moves towards property tax relief or something else. And, you know, with his recent press release or um, press conference, I, I didn't see that. It, it, um, and if anything, it looked like more government spending. There was a lot of talk about expansions of government versus the property tax relief. I mean, I think he talked a little bit about how much could go towards compression, right, rate compression, but also talked a lot about the homestead exemption, which, which look, um, the, the preference should always be to rate compression because when you lower the rates, it's lowering it for everyone. The homestead is only for those who have a primary place of residency, right? That their primary home, that's the homestead, which overlooks all the, all the businesses, um, secondary sort of homes. And, and by the way, apartment complexes and renter renting houses. So renters don't get any of that benefit. Um, and so what it really does ultimately is it shifts the burden around it, it, because the spending's not changing. It's just changing who is going to pay for that same amount of spending. So it just shifts everything around. And so the homestead, um, not only is not a good way to go, but it's also not really felt because all the valuations just go up and it, it, it moves away all of those savings. It, gi it gives away all those savings that may have happened under the homestead. So you really want to look at the rates overall. Um, and then if you looked at what Speaker Phelan said, right, I mean, I think, again, I heard a lot of spending. 
and growth of government with his priorities. Um, and there was only that, like you said, only the mention of the appraisal reform. And look, there were some major appraisal reforms in 2019. You know, this truth in taxation where you're getting this postcard and says how much your taxes are going up. You can look online and see what the no new revenue rate was. I, I thought they solved that problem back in 2019, right? Um, and, and so what sort of other property, you know, appraisal reforms would we really need? Um, because ultimately that's only one portion. It's the appraisal times the tax rate that gives you your total tax liability, right? And if you only look at the appraisal, which happens first, and you don't put the emphasis where it, where I think it needs to be on the politicians who are making these decisions to change the tax rate, we're never going to get control over the amount of taxes that we're actually paying over time. And so, again, I thought that was not much to hear. It's really been the governor, right, Governor Abbott, who has talked about cutting the property tax in half, putting on a path elimination, those sort of things, uh, which is not necessarily what we've heard a lot in the past. <laughs> I, I hope that there is the follow through during session. I know with talking with a lot of legislators, they're really passionate about using most, if, if not all, I'd love to see them use all, but most of this money, the surplus for property tax relief. And so I hope that that will put the pressure on them and the, and the, and the leadership to really do something big because we do have a historic opportunity here. So, uh, Jerry, we're going for about 30, 35 minutes. Do you have uh, anything else you uh, you want to ask Vance before we, we end? I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily think so. I, I You know, the only thing I would mention, and right, Tim and I talked about this before, is, you know, the governor is going to give his state of the state address uh, probably first week of February, somewhere around there, right? Yeah. And I think the, the big thing we'll be looking out for, on top of some of the other priorities, is does he mention property taxes? And to your Ooh. point is what you're just saying, right? It seems to be the governor kind of taking the lead on this, uh, this one that's going on. Who knows, right? We're only day two into yeah. the legislative session when we're recording this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see. I just, you know, it, ultimately kind of, you know, as we talk about the session and, uh, and spending and what have you, they've got a lot of stuff, right, to take care of. We're trying to, you know, simultaneously do school choice, Right. Uh, while all in talk about school finance, while also addressing property taxes, while also addressing, you know, all these litany of things. And so um, I think that where, where I would end and, and hopefully you would agree is, you know, trying to encourage folks to, right now is when you contact your lawmakers about this sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, this is a, like I said, it's horse historic opportunity that we all need to be pressuring folks to say, look, this is the time when we need substantial property tax relief. Um, we need school choice. We, we need to end taxpayer funded lobbying, you know, all these other things that are key as well. Um, but if we don't use this funds to provide property tax relief, what will it be used for? Growing government increasing government spending, um, and then we're never going to get on a path to eliminating some of these property taxes that we're paying that are immoral taxes that are costly to our economy and everything else. We, we really got to start that process now. I, I would really suggest as well that the governor make property tax relief an emergency item. This is an emergency. This is an affordability crisis that is not going to improve. With the, with the national recession that's happening, with inflation still out there, this is the opportunity for the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker, and, and members to provide relief now 
for um, folks across the state. And so if this was a mercy item, they could do it right away and get this process started without having to go through all the all, all the other traps of going through how much they're going to spend out of the rest of the surplus. Um, I, I know that's a big ask, right? Because usually they'll want probably border security and some of these other things. Um, but I do believe that this is an emergency situation that could be tackled by using the surplus funds to buy down the school and property tax. Yeah, I think, you know, the comptroller, Patrick, I've heard say this, uh, you've said this, TPPF said this, this is a historic once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, I'm not sure what they mean by that, but certainly from our perspective, it is a historic once in a lifetime opportunity to provide historic property tax relief and elimination and to put us on a path towards actually owning our house. Uh, and so I'm excited to see what the session holds. Of course, we're going to go through a little lull period here, but we will, of course, be talking with you uh, throughout the session. We appreciate you being with here, Vance. I uh, appreciate your insights. Uh, and just want to thank all of our viewers. We will see you again next week uh, as we really get session rolling. We appreciate y'all being with us this evening. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. For even more content, head over to our website, texastaxpayers.com, where you can find all of our written content, the Fiscal Responsibility Index, and a whole host of resources that can help you navigate the already ongoing 88th legislative session. Make sure while you're there to subscribe to the Fiscal Note and Vote Notices to stay informed about issues that affect your wallet. Thanks.